Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. We're learning about the hero of the Tanya, which is the Benini, the average Jew, which is 99.9% of the Jewish people who don't fall into the category of a tzaddik, who no longer have a struggle and have the ability to be a Benini, and who are not in the category of the worst Russia, who has, stops feeling guilty. How many Jews do you know don't feel guilty? <laughs> no. <laughs> so thank God, this is a very rare category. <laughs> as rare as the tzaddik is, hopefully, this completely self-hating Jew, the Jew so conceived, so has lost touch with his consciousness. It's a rare phenomenon. So most Jews have the ability to be, the Torah speaks to the average, and most Jews have the ability to be the Benini. And he says that although the Benini, practically speaking, is the same as the tzaddik, his actions are whole, his speech, his thoughts are totally wholesome, and he also has an inner commitment. He has an inner resolve not to do a sin of commission, a sin of omission, to, to sin. To transgress and to sin is something that's totally... He's not capable of. It's, it's as if he never will sin, never has sinned. At the state that he's at, he's at a state where sin is totally, it's not even a question, it's not possible. Like the Evan Ezra writes, the commentary, classical commentary writes in the Ten Commandments, the last of the Ten Commandments is, you shall not covet. So he gives an analogy. He says, if a person sees the daughter of the king passing by, and she's beautiful, <laughs> He's going to have a thought, you know, I would love to marry her. I mean, it's, the commoner knows it's, it's out of my range. It's out of my reach. It's just not part of my world. It's just, it's not, there's no connection. So it's not like a person will covet something that's, that's totally out of your reach. You're not going to spend energy. You're not going to spend time. It's just not for me. You know, it's a thought can pop into your head, but you, it's, you totally dismiss it. You're not going to... You're not going to get sick over it or really pine after something. You can't, you're not going to covet and pine after something that's not, that's just not possible. So when the Torah says, thou shalt not uh, covet, the Torah is saying you shouldn't, it's out, it should be out of your reach. So to sin, for a Jew, sin is something that's out of our, out of our reach. For, for a Jew to actually do something that goes against the will of Hashem, for a Jew to actually do something, that goes to think something that goes against the will of Hashem, but to speak something that goes against the will of Hashem, but to speak a lie, an untruth, or to slander someone, it's just, it's just not even a question. Yes, you may be tempted to do it, but you dismiss it. It's just not, it's not part of me. It has not part of, part of my realm. And that's the definition of a Benini. A Rasha is one who may be perfect, only because he's not tempted. But worried to be tempted, worried to be in the position where he is tempted, then he doesn't have that inner discipline, that inner commitment, that sin is just out of the question. Worried to be tempted, maybe he could sin. So practically, maybe he'll never sin in his life. But inwardly, 
he's like a rasha because he's, well, he's ready to sin. If something comes up that's tempting, that's worthy and that's tempting, yes, he'll do it. He'll indulge. A bainani is someone, even if he's tempted to do it, it's just out of the question. He won't even covet it. He won't even pursue it because it's just, he can't. How can I sin against God? How can I go against the will of God? So it's an inner state of being. It's an inner resolve, an inner commitment. And that defines the bainani. But nevertheless, he's not like the tzaddik because that tzaddik has no temptations. The tzaddik has totally conquered the little city, the microcosm. Not only has he totally conquered it, there is no enemy. He has taken care of the enemy. There's no threat. While the Benini has to be in constant vigilant, has to constantly be vigilant. Yes, he's conquered the city. Practically, he's in charge and he's in control of the city. He doesn't let, any, doesn't let the enemy in. But the enemy is always on the outside trying to get in. And he has to be constantly vigilant. And for the rest of his life, he'll have to struggle. He'll always be inner tension. He cannot overcome that inner tension. Because we are not in control of our subconscious. We can't control our desires. We shouldn't lust. We shouldn't have desires. That's simply not in our control. Even though we can live our whole life doing mitzvot and observing and doing everything that's right. And with all the power of the mitzvot, and thought, speech, and action, by fulfilling all 613 mitzvot, it still does not make a dent in our subconscious. Our animal soul, our ego soul, is as powerful as ever. And uh, we can't control that. It's simply not in our control. That's what God created us. We're going to struggle for, struggle for the rest of our life. But, um, but to actually, practically, go against Hashem, that, that, that's not even a question. That you're not even capable, capable of doing. It doesn't matter if it's a minor thing or if it's a major thing. It's a question of, of an inner discipline. How can I go against the will of Hashem? Hashem has stated explicitly, don't do this. Hashem has stated explicitly, I want you to do this. God's wish is my command. How can I trespass? How can I transgress? How can I violate? How can I go against that, that wish? So that inner discipline affects my actions. It can affect my behavior. I don't let the enemy into the city. I'm in charge and control of the city. But the enemy is still there, right outside the city. The enemy is menacing and the enemy is there and I can't lower my guard even for a moment. It's a constant tension, constant conflict, constant struggle. It's a never-ending war. And it's never resolved totally. You don't reach an unconditional surrender. It doesn't have a happy ending like the end of World War II. We had unconditional surrender of the enemy. The enemy is not surrendering. Not unconditionally, not conditionally. <laughs> the enemy is as li alive as ever. But I don't let him in. I'm vigilant. I guard my borders. I guard my boundaries. I don't let him into the city. So I protect myself. But it's, it's a constant struggle. It's a constant war. Like the good old days of the Cold War. It's a constant war, a constant struggle. You can't let your, you can't let your vigilance, down, vigilance down even for a moment. So the, de the destiny of the Bainini is to struggle for the rest of his life. Who does the Yetzirah get his strength from? Well, if a person sins, we add strength to the Yetzirah. But even the Bainini doesn't sin. But the fact is we go about our materialistic life. And as he said earlier in chapter 8, when you go about your daily needs and your daily life, inevitably, you know, you, you're not constantly thinking about Hashem. It's almost very difficult to constantly to be totally 100% pure about it, to totally egoless about it. It's almost impossible. So 
we feed, we nourish, we nurture our, our ego, our Yetzirah, our animal soul. You don't have to work hard. The ego comes natural. <laughs> it comes very, it's instinctive, it's very natural. If the Baini is the godly soul that comes unnatural, it's between being godly that seems a little otherworldly and unnatural, and it's a constant, constant battle and struggle. But, um, you know, we have to be constantly vigilant, and, and this is what God wants. God derives pleasure from our struggle, from overcoming. When we overcome our difficulty, and overcome our struggle. This is, this is the purpose of creation. And the angels who have no struggle, the angels don't give God too much pleasure. It's we who give God pleasure when there is a struggle. And yet we overcome that struggle. Every time there's a struggle, there's a difficulty, and there's an obstacle, and there's a hurdle. Every time we overcome that hurdle, overcome that struggle, that gives God infinite pleasure. That's the novelty. We're like the parrot that speaks. You want to entertain the great king. You want to entertain Einstein. What do you do? You have a parrot show. Parrot speak. It's very entertaining. People speak. You don't find it so entertaining. <laughs> Because that, that comes from that, that's what you expect. <laughs> a parrot speaks, even though what does a parrot say already? It's so exciting, it's fun, it's thrilling, it's entertaining. Why? Because it's unexpected. You don't expect the parrot to speak. It's one thing if an angel speaks. An angel praises God and believes in God and has faith and connects to God and praises God. Okay, big deal. Of course, what's there to be, you know, what's the big deal? What's the big, what's no news? But with a human being, flesh and blood, Egotistical. As he gets her, tries to stop him every step of the way, and there are obstacles and 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 from and from left field. God throws his curves from left field, from within and from without, and inner and outer obstacles and weaknesses and and human foibles, and we have to overcome it. And every mitzvah is a difficulty. Every step of the way. This is this is this is a novelty. This is the parrot that's speaking. Every word of Torah that we study, every word of prayer that we mouth, every mitzvah that we do, every act of selflessness, of kindness, of goodness, every penny that we give to tzedakah, money, the ultimate ego symbol, we're able to give it away instead to give it to tzedakah. This is a novelty. This gives God infinite pleasure. Only God can appreciate and, and truly value the infinite value of the tiniest, slightest movement for the good in this world is so powerful. This is what gives Hashem pleasure. This is what gives Hashem nachas. So yes, we internally will never have tranquility. We'll never have peace, nirvana. We're not destined to. Life is a struggle. Get used to it. 99.9% .9 of us, life is a struggle. And that's the way it's going to be. Until 120, our goal is, our ideal is not nirvana, because that will never reach it until Mashiach comes. Mashiach will come, yes. Then that will be the end of the struggle. We won't have to struggle with negativity. We won't have a Yetzirah anymore. We won't have any urges and instincts. We'll overcome like the level of the tzaddik. At least the, the lower level of the tzaddik. But we won't, won't be a struggle anymore. The struggle will cease. Because godliness will become obvious. But till that moment, that moment hasn't arrived yet. You don't have to look further. Just look at our own lives. We, can, we know that moment hasn't arrived. We'll know when that moment is here.
And we can all testify that the moment isn't here yet. Maybe we're on the verge, we're on the threshold, any moment, open your eyes, open your ears, open your eyes. But it hasn't happened yet. The proof is we still have healthy egos, and we still have healthy evil inclinations, and it's alive and well, and we all know that from our personal experience. So Mashiach hasn't come yet. It's quite obvious, painfully obvious, too painfully obvious. But nevertheless, there are moments when every Jew, the Benini, could get a, level, a taste of the tzaddik. At least for a brief moment, you can take a recess. You can take a break from the struggle. That's during prayer. When a Jew prays, that's the time that the heavenly gates are open. That's the time that your mind opens up. That godliness is accessible. Godliness could be transparent. For those few moments, you can anesthetize, you can put your ego to sleep. At least those few moments, you're not even tempted to do anything wrong. You can feel godliness. You put your ego on the side. And you allow the godly soul to emerge at the surface, to a conscious level. At least for those brief moments, you take a break from the struggle. And it's, in this, it's, it's, it's essential that we do that. Because a person who never takes a break from the struggle wearies you down after a while. You grow tired and weary. It becomes a burden. And then we don't have the strength to be able to overcome the ego, the Yitzhahara, the natural soul. That's why every morning we have to daven again. We ate yesterday a three-course dinner. Today is a new day. Yesterday's dinner is not enough to nourish you. Today you have to eat again. Yesterday's davening is not enough. Yesterday's davening was a shot in the arm and gave you a boost and energized you and, and inspired you and rejuvenated you, pun intended. That, would, that worked the yesterday. Today is a new day. Today I need a new, fresh connection. I have to focus again and I have to center myself again and I have to, to feel the godliness, the godly spark inside it. And I have to feel the godly connection. I have to experience it. And that will give me the strength to, to go through this coming day. So this is essential. This is the backbone, as we discussed the other week. This is essential, the backbone. Prayer, why prayer plays such a central role in Hasidic life, in Jewish life. As mentioned in the Mishnah with the early Hasidim, with Davin nine hours a day. But it, it took again, once again, it took central, central stage again in Hasidic life, and especially in the Chabad Lubavitch, Hasidic life, Davening. Prayer took a very essential place. That's the time when you meditate. That's the time when you focus. That's the time when you concentrate. That's the time when your mind is open, when the heavenly gates are open. That's the time when you can really access and connect. Connect with, with your godly neshama. You can feel your neshama and put your ego to sleep for a while. Don't worry, it's not going anywhere. The moment you finish davening, you, <laughs> you, you hit that bagel. It, it comes roaring back to life. But nevertheless, as we'll learn, the davening is helpful for the rest of the day. Okay, so he says right after davening, it, 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 wake, it awakens because it hasn't affected a core change. The Baini is not like the Tzaddik. The Tzaddik has transformed, had a core transformation. The Baini doesn't have the power to achieve a core transformation. But nevertheless, in the middle of 175, yet because... Yet, because the evil of the animal soul has not the soul authority and domination over the city, for the good of the divine soul situated in the brain has its say as well. It is unable to implement its desire by clothing itself in the limbs of the body, to engage in deed, speech, or actual thought, 
actual thought meaning to concentrate his attention on worldly pleasures with a view to devising means of satisfying the lusts of his heart. The Bainani's desire for worldly pleasures will cause thoughts of such matters to rise from the heart to his mind. These thoughts are beyond his control, beyond the sphere of dominance of his divine soul. He can, however, control his actual conscious and willful thought so that immediately he becomes aware of the forbidden thoughts, he dismisses them from his mind, not permitting himself to dwell on them, nor to think how to implement them. He's explaining what he says uh, in thought, deed, speech, and actual thought. It doesn't just say thought, it's actual thought, because thought is really not in your control. You can't control thoughts that pop into your mind. Your thoughts that pop in your mind are a result of your lusts, of your feelings. You can't, you're a human being, you have feelings and thoughts pop into your mind. That's not in your control. You can't feel guilty about something that's not in your control. But he doesn't, at the moment it pops into his mind, he dismisses it. He doesn't continue the thought. He doesn't put any energy in the thought. He's, he just stops thinking about it because we are in control. We can't control what we can't control what pops into our mind. You can stop speaking. You can stop action, but you cannot stop thinking. You think constantly, continuously, 24-7, even when you're sleeping, constantly thinking. But you could switch channels. You could change the content of your thought. So if the content of your thought is negative or prohibited, so you'd switch channels, you stop, you stop thinking about that and move on to things that are wholesome and permissible. So that's, that's why the Alter Rebbe says that, that he doesn't allow the animal soul to engage in deed, speech, or actual thought. Not thought is not in this control, but actual thought. To pursue the thought, to concentrate his attention. And the moment it enters his mind, he dismisses it. He dismisses it. Okay, continue. Returning now to his statement that the divine soul of the Benini keeps the desires of his animal soul in check, preventing their expression in deed, speech, and actual thought. The Alta Rebbe explains why this is possible. Because the brain rules over the heart, as is written in Rayam Mehemina, Parshat Pichas, by virtue of its innately created nature. For man was so created from birth that every person may, with the power of the will in his brain, the will created of his mind's understanding, restrain himself and control the drive of his heart's lust. Preventing his heart's desires from finding expression in deed, word, and thought, when the mind understands the evil inherent in such deed, word, or thought, and he can, if his mind will it, divert his attention completely from that which his heart craves and turn his attention to the exactly opposite direction. The principle of mind over heart holds true even where the restraint of one's desires is dictated by simple logic. Without motives of holiness, the demands of the mind's logic are, alone, sufficiently powerful to steer one's attention in directions diametrically opposed to that which his heart creates. This is a fundamental uh, principle of Chabad Hasidism, to utilize this nature that God gave us, that man has the ability to control mind over matter. And we see it, it's true, that when things matter to us, we're not just animals of habit, of nature, of instinct. We're able to control our nature, control our instincts. Um, when it comes to things that matter to us, people who in their own personal lives 
Their lives are so chaotic, so out of control. But in this area that matters to them, they could be paragons of virtue. They would put Mother Teresa to shame. Like in business, we all know, the customer is always right. When the customer acts obnoxiously, and you, you, you want to hang them, hang them. But you control yourself, so your urge, your instinct, your nature tells you you just want to wring their neck, you want to yell at them, you want to tell them off. And you, you know, you're probably right, but you keep on smiling. The greatest saint would admire your, your, your discipline and your ability to control your nature and your instinct. Why is that? Where does that come from? Because money matters to you. When something matters to you, the customer is always right. So, I want to yell. So, I'm angry. So, so what? Control yourself. That, and we have that ability. Everyone has that ability. When it comes to our health, even the drunkard uses his drunkenness as an excuse. You notice when he goes down the steps, he has enough presence of mind to hold on to the rail. He doesn't go tumbling down the steps. He doesn't hurt himself. When was the last time you rolled out of bed in the middle of your sleep? People have presence of mind. God gave a human being the ability to control his instincts and his nature. Yeah, it's called presence of mind. Your mind is superior. Your mind is, in, is in, in charge, is in control. And a person is always in control. The whole idea that a person is never in control, which is the position of society today, that everything is excusable because nobody is in control of anything and everyone is to blame except ourselves, is diametrically opposed to the whole Torah point of view. The whole Torah point of view is that a person is always in control. doesn't mean that you just think and automatically you're in control. How have I? <laughs> it was that easy. You know, then dieting wouldn't be a problem. If anyone just thought, I want to diet, then <laughs> obviously it takes a lot more than that. But if you are able to focus and concentrate and realize that this is important to you, being your health is important to you, and this is going to affect your health, that can give you, then, if you apply your mind, you have the presence of mind to be able to overcome your instinct. And millions of people successfully do so. And millions of people, in many areas in their lives, whether it's athletes who live a very disciplined life, because in order to develop their talent, they have to lead a disciplined life. Or whether it's artists who lead a disciplined life because they want to express their art, or whether it's people who have a vision, a dream, ambitious, and they know that this is what they want to become, and they dedicate the next four to eight years to go to university, to college, university, to get their degrees and masters, even though it involves tremendous discipline, tremendous sacrifice. But they know that this is what they want to do. They have a presence of mind, overcomes a natural instinct, and they do it. So a person has that ability. We see it throughout life. That's, that's, that's the nature of maturity, of mature human being. A mature human being, God gave a human being the ability of mind over matter. That we are in charge, we are in control, and we could control ourselves. It's not easy, but it's, but, it's, but it's possible. The exception is, however, a person who becomes addicted. A person who becomes addicted loses control. And even against his own wishes, contrary to his own wishes, even if he wants to control himself, because he's in such pain, he can't control himself anymore. He lost that ability to control. Which also comes as a result of his decisions, earlier decisions. Because he made decisions. And he allowed, indulged, and he allowed himself to indulge without any restraints. 
he let himself, he brought himself to a level where he can't control it, he lost control. Then his heart is in total control. It says in Russia, a wicked person is harder than total control. His mind has absolutely no power at all. There's no strength left. Like Paro. Paro couldn't let the Jews go even if he wanted to. He became so addicted to evil that even when it went contrary to his own, own benefit, his own benefit dictated let the Jews go, he's just self-destructed. He brought himself to destruction. He brought the whole Egypt to destruction. He just couldn't let go. That's an addict. That's a sign of an addict. Even though the addict is in pain and wants to let go, but he can't because his heart is in total control. But that comes as a result of all the terrible decisions that Paro made, that the addict made in his life. He led a life of indulgence and, and therefore he brought him to a state where his heart is in total control, his mind is totally powerless. But thank God that's not, uh, that's not the average. The average person, the way God created us is that we have the ability to control ourselves, mind over matter. If we ply our minds, and if we truly, if it's something that's valuable to us, something that matters to us, something we care about deeply, if we realize that we care about it, like money, it doesn't take, it doesn't take a big deal for us to realize that we care about it. But if you think about it and you realize that being healthy is also something that's important to us and you care about it deeply, and if you apply your mind, mind over matter, you can control your heart, you can control your urges and instincts to eat junk food, and you can control yourself not to do so. So God gave us the ability to control ourselves. So too, yes, we have urges and we have instincts and we're attracted to materialism and the Yitzhahara is alive and healthy. But nevertheless, we can discipline ourselves and we can apply ourselves and make a decision. We have enough presence of mind to lead a wholesome life. I don't want to live a drunk lifestyle. I don't want to speak lies. I don't want to speak untruth. I don't want to slander. I don't want to think negative thoughts. I want to think wholesome, speak wholesome, act wholesome. I want to lead a Jewish life, a godly life, an uplifting life, an inspired life, a committed life, a meaningful life. And it's within our power. God is not asking us to do the impossible. The Torah is not given to angels. The Torah is given to human beings. We have that power. God gave us the ability to overcome our instincts, overcome our desires, our negative desires, and to discover a deeper voice, an inner voice, that inner subtle voice. Just like when it comes to our physical health, there's, if you listen carefully, quiet, there's that quiet inner voice that's telling us what to eat and what not to eat. There is that voice, because we drown it out, we don't pay attention. So we have presence of mind if we truly listen and truly pay attention to what's good for us. We'll discover deep down what we, who we really are. This is what I really want to do. I don't want that junk lifestyle, and I don't want... I want to do the right thing. And I feel good about doing the right But it takes presence of mind. But we have that ability. God gave us that ability. So we have the tools. We have what it takes. The Torah is, is given to humans. God gave us, human beings, the ability to be able to live a Jewish lifestyle. So no one could say that the Torah is given to angels. This is not a realistic program for real people. Not true. The Torah is a realistic program for real people. Because God gave us the ability of mind of a man, presence of mind. And that's true in all areas in our life. If this is true, whatever his motives, it is true particularly in the direction of holiness, when motivated by the knowledge that his lustful thoughts are sinful, and thoughts of Torah and mitzvah are good and praiseworthy, one seeks to divert his attention from the former to the latter. 
so that both his goal and his motives are holy. His mind's will is particularly effective in mastering his heart and thoughts. So when it comes to holiness, it's much more powerful. Mind of a matter is true in every area in our life. Health, financially, any area in our life that matters to us. But especially, that's especially true when it comes to matters of holiness. Then we have an additional strength in our arsenal. We have additional strength we have to be able to overcome our negative urges and instincts. Continue. For thus it is written, Then I saw that wisdom surpasses folly, as light surpasses dark. Okay, we'll skip to page 178. And the question is, what's King Solomon trying to say? Is King Solomon trying to tell us that uh, wisdom is superior to foolishness? I know that wisdom is superior to foolishness. What does the analogy of light, of a darkness, help us in our understanding? When you use an analogy, the analogy is coming to clarify something. Help us better understand. It's, it's self-evident. Obviously, wisdom is superior to foolishness. Light is superior to darkness, and wisdom is superior to foolishness. What does the analogy help us in our understanding of the superiority of wisdom over foolishness? So the Al-Drebi is going to explain now that, that he's not coming to tell us that it's superior, just like light is superior. He's coming to tell us how it's superior. It's how light is superior over darkness. Just like light a little light dispels a lot of darkness. So much more so than the, vol- the volume of darkness. You can be in a huge tunnel, you light a little match, you light up the whole tunnel. A little light dispels a lot of darkness. And it doesn't even have to wrestle with the darkness. The darkness just melts away. Why is that? Why is that true? How is it possible for a little light to dispel so much darkness, such a huge volume of darkness? Everything in the world, the physical world, for something to dispel another thing, it has to be of equal volume. You dispel water. If you put a certain amount of volume, it dispel an equal amount of volume of water. How can one little match dispel such a huge volume of darkness? And it doesn't even have to wrestle or struggle with the darkness. The darkness just melts away. How is it possible? Because what's the relationship of light and darkness? Light is a substance. Darkness is merely the void, the emptiness. Darkness is no substance. Light is reality. Darkness is the void. Therefore, a little light dispels darkness and the darkness melts away. There's no room for the darkness. When there's light, there's no room for darkness. Because light is a substance. So too, he's coming to tell us. That's the analogy that helps us clarify the superiority of wisdom, which is referring to the wisdom of Torah, the wisdom of godliness, godly wisdom over foolishness. He's coming to tell us that Torah and mitzvot are like light. Light is the substance. Light is reality. Ego is the absence of light. It doesn't have any inherent substance, inherent reality. It's a lie. It's a distortion. It's, 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 it's. And therefore, the moment you light a candle, the moment you bring a little light, a little divine light, you do a mitzvah, mitzvah Torah, or the mitzvah is like a candle and the Torah is like a light. The moment you illuminate that darkness, the moment you bring a little light into this world, when the godly soul, when the pintle the godly soul is also like a candle, lights up through learning Torah, which is like a light, and doing a mitzvah, which is like a candle, we light up the darkness. When a Jewish neshama learns Torah and does a mitzvah, you light up your own little world, the microcosm, and you light up the macrocosm. You're bringing in light, light, a little light has such power 
is so powerful that it's able to dispel a lot of darkness. And the darkness just melts away, doesn't even know if any reason. Why? Because although it appears to be a huge darkness, this world seems to be saturated in darkness. And not only the greater world, our own world. The Benini is destined to struggle for the rest of his life. He has to wrestle and struggle with the ego. And, but nevertheless, you have to remember the power of a mitzvah. A mitzvah is so powerful that one little mitzvah has the power to dispel so much darkness. Which is why the Yetzirah is so terrified of any Jew doing any mitzvah. If you see how much energy the Yetzirah <laughs> expends in keeping a Jew from doing a mitzvah, it would cure all our self-esteem issues. You think you have no value? You're nothing. The Yetzirah doesn't think so. The Yetzirah thinks you're very important because look how much power and energy he pours into you. He's terrified. If God forbid this Jew is going to say an extra word of Tehillim, if this Jew is going to give an extra penny to Tzedakah, if this Jew is going to do an extra favor, if this Jew is going to learn an extra minute of Torah, he's terrified because he knows the power of that. That power is enough to extinguish him. That power is enough to make him vanish because there's nothing there. He knows it's all bluff. There's no reality there. This is reality. Torah is reality. Mitzvah is reality. A Jew is reality. God is reality. Everything else is just, is just a bluff. And he knows it. And he's terrified of it. Because he knows when you fill your heart, your mind, you fill your, your reality, your life with Torah and mitzvah, there's no room for darkness. The darkness just melts away and vanishes. So on one hand, the Yetzirah is very powerful. The ego is very powerful. It's not within our control to overcome it, to triumph over it, to, to banish it. To, we will struggle for the rest of our life. The Baini has to struggle for the rest of our life. But on the other hand, the mitzvah is so powerful, the Torah is so powerful, that it's like a little light that dispels a lot of darkness. And the Yetzirah is terrified. And that's why a Jew has the strength. If a Jew thinks to himself, where do I have the strength to overcome my animalistic instincts and urges and unwholesome, unhealthy and unwholesome desires. And how can I overcome this, this difficult conflict, internal conflict? The answer is that we have the power of Torah. The power of Torah is so powerful that once you overcome the struggle and you do the mitzvah, that gives you so much strength. The mitzvah itself will give you so much strength. And we'll be able to overcome all these instincts. Sometimes we feel overwhelmed. Sometimes we feel it's impossible. How can I? But when you do that mitzvah, after you do the mitzvah, you feel the power, the strength of that mitzvah. You feel that divine energy is so powerful that the darkness just melts away. The cloud just vanishes, fades away. And it gives you strength to go on. So, coupled, firstly, the fact that mind over matter. God created a human being, a mature human being has the ability of mind over matter. But especially, when the mind of a matter is in relation to holiness, holy things, it's a question of overcoming your animalistic urges and instincts and doing, studying Torah and doing a mitzvah, doing the right thing, that's so powerful that it can, or has the ability to overcome any darkness. And that's for even the slightest mitzvah. We have to appreciate the power of the tiniest mitzvah. A Jew is never allowed to be discouraged. A Jew is never allowed to be depressed. A true has to, we can't even realize the infinite value, the slightest movement towards the good. There was once a story, the Alter Rebbe, there was this real uh, playboy in town, he really, really lived a real wild lifestyle. And the Hasidim 
were trying to bring them closer to Yiddishkeit, and they would invite them to the shul. And, but they didn't see any results. <laughs> he was as wild as ever and lived a carefree life as ever. And the Hasidim asked the Rebbe if they're wasting their time, if they should continue to... So the Rebbe said, listen, if as a result of you drawing him near and being friendly to him, bringing him into the shul, instead of, instead of thinking nine negative thoughts a day, he thinks eight negative thoughts. Instead of sinning six sins a day, he only does five sins a day. He can't imagine the infinite pleasure that gives to Hashem. The slightest movement is so valuable. The tiniest movement for the good creates, evokes a nuclear explosion, a spiritual explosion, on dimensions that we can't even begin to fathom, which only Hashem could appreciate. That's the energy that's, that's, that's contained in each and every mitzvah, in the slightest movement toward the good, thought, speech, or action. So when you do a mitzvah, there's so much light there, there's so much, because that's reality, that's reality, that's real. Like people ask, when the Rebbe started the mitzvah campaign, you know, to get a woman to light a Shabbat candle. Well, isn't she being hypocritical? She's going to light a Shabbat candle. Then she's going to go into a car on Shabbat, drive to a non-kosher, of course, Chinese restaurant on Shabbat. So what's, I'm being hypocritical. What's the point of lighting a Shabbat candle? Either all or nothing. Either I'm genuine or I'm not genuine. Either I'm consistent or I can... It's no. When you're doing that mitzvah, that mitzvah is so genuine, that mitzvah is authentic, that mitzvah is so powerful. Listen, you're starting out with nothing, so you have to start slowly but surely. But that like one time lighting a Shabbat candle could, will turn your whole life around, eventually. That's the power of a mitzvah. One mitzvah leads to another mitzvah. It's addictive. And there's no cure for these addictions. This is the power of a mitzvah. That's what Shleim HaMelech is coming to tell us in this brilliance. The wisest man that ever lived is illuminating for us and teaching us something new, something we didn't realize. You want to know? Of course we all know that wisdom is superior to folly. That's not what he's coming to tell. He's coming to tell us how, how profoundly superior it is. It's as superior as light over darkness. Just like light is superior to darkness. That a little light dispels so much darkness and it doesn't even have to wrestle or struggle with the darkness. Darkness melts away. Why? Because light is the substance and darkness is merely the absence of the void. So too, in this physical world, although we so, seem to be overwhelmed and distracted by materialism and urges and instincts and ego and unhealthy and unwholesome desires, but nevertheless, don't be fooled for a moment. Realize that Torah and mitzvot and the godly soul, that substance, that's reality. Everything else is darkness, is the void. And if you fill it with light, there's no room for the darkness. And a little light, one mitzvah, the slightest mitzvah, the slightest baby step forward, climbing the ladder, going forward, doing an extra mitzvah, the slightest movement, has such infinite power that we cannot even begin to fathom. You know who appreciates it? The Yitzhahara appreciates it. That's what the Yitzhahara is terrified. We'll do everything in his power to stop any Jew on a Wednesday afternoon, the simplest Jew on the simplest day, the simplest act. He'll do anything in his power to get this Jew not to do it. Because he's terrified. He knows the power and the strength of this tiny good deed. That one good deed has the power to create a nuclear, spiritual nuclear explosion and to unleash such powerful energy. For the person who's doing the mitzvah, the microcosm as well as for the macrocosm for the entire world and universe. And only Hashem could appreciate the infinite value of the slightest movement, positive movement forward. So that's what Shleim Amel is coming to teach us. That the, it's as superior as light over darkness. This analogy means 
This analogy means that just as light has superiority, power, and dominion over darkness, so that a little physical light banishes a great deal of darkness, which is displaced automatically and inevitably, without any effort on the part of the light, so is there driven away automatically much foolishness of the klipa and sitra akra of the animal soul located in the left part of the heart. As indeed our sages say, a man does not sin unless a spirit of folly enters him. So the simple meaning of the Talmud is when a person sins, you do foolish things. You lose your mind. You do things that are irrational because you're just tempted and you don't think. You don't think of the consequences. You don't, think, you don't realize what you're doing. You just can't help yourself. You just sin. But on a deeper level, the Talmud is saying that sin itself is only possible only because of a moment of madness. It has to be a moment of insanity. Because even an animal doesn't jump into fire. You don't jump into fire. Naturally, you don't jump into fire. You don't do something that's harmful to yourself. For a Jew to sin, it's harmful. You're doing harm to yourself. So jumping into fire. So a, a person has to forget a moment of insanity. You have to forget who you are. You have to forget about your godly connection. And you forget that if I'm a Jew, how can I sin? How can I self-destruct like this? How can I go against my true nature? So it's a moment of insanity. So it's folly. It's really stupidity. It's foolishness. But you forget. But if you don't forget, if you remember, that light, that light is able to overcome the darkness, the void, and the foolishness of the evil inclination. That's why the evil inclination is called Melech Zakein Uksil. He's an old king and a foolish king. On the other hand, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe would call him the Kluginke, the smart one. Because if you think Madison Avenue uh, gurus are geniuses. They, they can learn a lesson from the Yetzirah. The Yetzirah is the real Madison Avenue hype. He knows how to sell a product. He knows how to sell bluff and baloney and there's nothing there, but he sells it. He packages it and he sells it and he, he customizes it. This is the age of the internet. It's customization. Everyone gets his own package presentation, <laughs> customized, individualized. The Yitzhara knows how to talk to everyone based on their personality, individuality, their circumstances, wherever they are that moment. And he, he, he can change faces, a thousand faces. One moment he becomes a tzaddik, another moment he, he Whatever it'll take. And he can he'll lie and he'll just, whatever it takes to seduce you and to sell you on balon, on bluff, on harir. That's the Yitzhara. So he's, on the other hand, he's very clever, clean. Very creative, genius. You can learn from him. Is he clever or are we stupid? Because we buy, we buy it all the time. So what? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's both. He is clever, and we're foolish because they say if you know if they fool me once, <laughs> then then uh, he's the fool. If they fool me twice or three times, and I'm the fool. So if we keep on being fooled and seduced, when we know already what happened last time we were seduced, we know the heartache and the pain that resulted. We know it was a dead end. We know it was, a, uh, it was all bluff. There was nothing there. It was like chewing gum. It tasted good for a moment, and then you spit it out, and it was just, there was nothing there. But so if we fall for it again, then yes, then we are the fools. But the Yetzirah is very clever. So he's a Klugenke. On the other hand, it's called a Melanzakin Uxil, foolishness, because what he's peddling is foolishness. And he can only, we can only fall for it when we're being foolish. Because we, if we forget, if we remember who we are, that we're Jews, and we have that connection, how can we, how can we fall for this? So the, the, 
And that's the darkness. That's, that represents the darkness. And the light that shines in darkness is the wisdom of the godly soul. Continue. Those are our sages. Thus our sages described the desires of the animal soul as folly. Hence they are automatically banished by the wisdom of the divine soul that is in the brain. So the wisdom, that's the light, the wisdom of the divine soul that desires and wants to do what God wants and wants to do the right thing. That's the light. That's the flashlight or the torch. That's the light, the candle, that illuminates the darkness. So when a person is in touch with that divine wisdom and he hears the voice of that divine wisdom and he listens to that consciousness, and he listens to the to that voice, that inner voice, and listens to that light, then that has the strength to be able to overcome, that gives you the strength to be able to overcome your natural instincts and urges. Continue. Which desires to rule alone over the city, the body, and to pervade the entire body by means of its aforementioned three garments, namely thought, speech, and action, connected with the 613 mitzvot of the Torah, as discussed above. In the Benini, this desire of the divine soul in the brain, that it alone pervade his thought, speech, and action, and hence his entire body, controls the lustful desires which the animal soul arouses in his heart. Moreover, it prevents their actual expression because of the natural supremacy of mind over heart and of holiness over evil. But that leads us to the question, it seems that the Benini, as we discussed, is a very unique human being. Based on, on this description that we just learned, do you know any Benini? Do you know a single individual that you can call a Benini? In all of your acquaintances, in all, have you ever met in your life a Jew who's a Benini? You got rabbis of Beninis, most of them. <laughs> Compared to us, they're Benini. A Benini is an, is an objective reality. Halavai Benini. Halavai. Oh. Do you know do you know anyone that you can call a Benny, a person who has never once sinned in his life? Not in speech, not in action, hasn't wasted a moment of learning, never spoke, sl never slandered anyone, not even um, a, even a subtle slander, a subtle lie, who the idea of going against the will of God whether a sin of com act of commission or act of omission is simply abhorrent, is simply not possible. The moment a thought pops into your mind, you banish it and you s switch channels. Do you know such an individual? I don't. <laughs> and Dr. Rebbe is saying this is 99.9% .9 of us have the ability to be a Benin. But this Benin sounds like a great tzaddik. If he said there's one or two tzaddikim in the world, how many benim are there? You probably also counted on, on, on a handful of people. So what's the difference between the benim and the tzaddik? Why isn't the benim a tzaddik? The people you're describing, most rabbis and shivas and nice Jews, are Russia, the Russia of Tanya. Within Russia, you have many levels we discussed the other week. But there will be a nice Russia, good Russia. Higher level of a Russia, but, uh, but a Benini, a Benini is he talking about a, a Benini is someone who every day puts his animal soul to sleep, puts his ego to sleep, because he davens with great focus, with great concentration, feels the godliness within his soul. 
and momentarily, at least temporarily, puts his animal soul to sleep. How many people do you know like that? Who are we kidding? So why isn't the Benny a tzaddik? The Benny sounds like a nice tzaddik. He says, nevertheless, he's not a tzaddik at all. He's closer to the Russia than he is to the tzaddik. Okay. Nevertheless, he is not deemed a tzaddik at all. For this dominance that the light of the divine soul has over the darkness and folly of the kalipa of the animal soul, which is automatically dispelled, is limited to the divine soul's aforementioned three garments. Only in thought, speech, and action does the divine soul of the Benoni dominate this animal soul. But the essence and core of the divine soul does not dominate the essence and core of the animal soul deriving from the Kalipa. For in the Benoni, the essence and core of the animal soul originating in Kalipa, which is lodged in the left part of the heart, remains undisturbed. After prayer, when the burning love of God is no longer in a revealed state in the right part of his heart, as it was during prayer, when the love glowed openly and was palpably felt there. Rather, the love after prayer only on the inside, his heart is inlaid with hidden love, meaning that love which is natural to the divine soul, nor the revealed love born in meditation that the divinity experiences during prayer, but a natural hidden love of God, as will be discussed further, that in the heart of every Jew lies hidden a natural love of God. Deep down, every Jew has a, a divine love. That's what makes us Jewish. We have a Jewish soul. A Jewish soul is a divine soul that naturally loves God. But that love is natural, in it, but it's hidden, it's concealed. That's subconscious. That's what's called ava misuteris, a hidden love. It's hidden, it's there, it's intact, it's whole. A Jew is a Jew is a Jew. The pintle it always remains whole, but it's hidden. It's not a force in your life. It's not consciously felt in your life. It's only during prayer that the benini has the ability to allow the godly soul, this natural love, to emerge into surface in a conscious level that he can feel, he can experience the godly connection. And he can be consumed by it. And he can fill his heart and his mind with the light of Hashem. And therefore there's no room for the darkness. For those few moments in prayer, he puts the animal soul to sleep and all he feels is godliness. He only, not only doesn't do anything wrong, he's not even tempted to do anything wrong. During prayer, all he wants, his heart is overflowed with emotion, with feeling towards godliness. But then the moment he stops praying, the animal soul comes, the ego comes roaring back to life. Because the prayer cannot affect the subconscious. It cannot achieve a core transformation. They shouldn't even desire, shouldn't even lust, they shouldn't feel any attachment to materialism. It's simply not within our power. Because the Benini only works on a conscious level. The Benini is only working with his logical mind and with his heart, his revealed reveal part of his heart. The Benini can't really reach, touch himself so deeply. It's simply not within our power. You know, we can only reach the part that we can reach. We can think, we can meditate, we can reflect, we can study, we can learn, we can concentrate. That we're in control of. God gave us control over that. We can control our minds. And presence of mind over matter. With the presence of mind, you can even control your heart in a certain sense. To control, overcome your, it urges your instincts. But you cannot control your subconscious. We don't even know how to access our subconscious. How are we going to change our subconscious? We, don't, we, don't, we, don't, we can't even access our subconscious. We don't even know how to even reach that place. How can you change it if you don't even know how to get there? It's there, deep down. Every Jew has this hidden love. 
It's innate, it's inherent. But if you can't even access it, how can you control it? How can you change anything? How can you overcome? You can't. So your ego is beyond our control. It's beyond our reach. And therefore our ego comes very natural. It's very instinctive. And that part we can't control. All we can do is that we can control our mind and therefore when we fill during prayer when we fill our mind with the awareness of Hashem we fill our mind and our heart with the light of Hashem then there's no room for the darkness at least for those few moments when I'm praying consciously in my mind and my heart I don't feel my ego it's as if my ego doesn't exist for the hour or two that I'm praying but the moment I stop praying the ego comes roaring back because I, I can't reach my subconscious I can't reach that place that's beyond the rational mind the ego mind I can't affect any change there if I can't even reach it. And God didn't give me the ability to reach it. So there's nothing I can do. So I can't change that place. So as much as I daven, and as much as I learn, as much as I do mitzvah, and as selfless, and as many good deeds as I do, and as committed as I am, and as sincere as I am, and as wholesome as my lifestyle is, with all the Torah and the mitzvah and all the power of the light of the Torah and mitzvah, and the light in my godly soul and my hidden love to God. I cannot dislodge the animal soul. The animal soul is alive and healthy. It's there. And it will be there with me the rest of my life. I can't control it. Very discouraging. One second. One second. No, but one second. But, but we're coming to the good part. Go ahead. <laughs> the goodness. Go ahead. Turn to prayer when the love of God is no longer revealed in the heart of the Benoni. It is possible for the folly of the wicked fool, the animal soul, to reveal itself in the left part of the heart, craving all physical matters of this world, whether permitted, except that they should be desired and used as means of serving God, whereas at this time the Benoni craves them for their own sake, for the pleasure they provide, or whether prohibited, God forbid, a thought he has never prayed. As though he never prayed. As though he has never prayed. So here he's so refined and he's experiencing godliness and he's an ecstatic and he's all excited about godliness. He closes the prayer book, he leaves the shul, he attacks the bagel, and uh, <laughs> it's as if it's as if it just vanishes, as if it never happened. Continue. His craving is limited only in that in the case of a craving for a prohibited matter, it does not enter his mind to transgress in actual practice, God forbid. But thoughts of sin, which are in certain respect, as explained in the previous chapter, more heinous than actual sin, can manage to rise to his mind to distract him from Torah and divine service. Right, he explained earlier the most subtle interpretation of this uh, um, statement of the rabbis, Talmudic rabbis, Hirhuri Avera, is more difficult than Avera. If you think something wrong, because thought is the most subtle of all the soul expressions. It's the closest to the soul. That's why you can't stop thinking. Just like the soul is constant, speech you can turn on and turn off. At least some people could. Action you can turn on and turn off. But thought you can't stop thinking. Why? Because it's so close to the soul. So anything, any negativity, affects the soul, affects the thought much deeper than the other because the others are more external to you. This is more intimate, more private. So when you think negative thoughts, prohibited thoughts, lewd thoughts, negative thoughts, prohibited thoughts, it affects you much deeper. 
It's like when you wear a nice suit, a white suit, a stain will show up much, much more than if you wear a dark suit. So the, so the action and speech are more external to the person, while thought is very intimate, very close to the soul. So anything negative in thought, if you think negatively, it, it generates a lot of negative energy, and it affects you much, much deeper. So thoughts of sin is even more difficult for the sin. And it's very difficult to be able to overcome. Why? Because thoughts constantly pop into your mind, and we don't control it. So to, be, to constantly be able to discard those thoughts, and to switch channels, and to think about other things, and not to indulge even for a moment in, in negative thoughts, prohibited thoughts, is very difficult. You have to be constantly vigilant. Because they come from left field, they come out of nowhere, and they come when you least expect it. Okay, continue, as our sages say. As our sages say, there are three sins so difficult to avoid that no man is safe from transgressing daily. Thoughts of sin, lack of concentration in prayer, and slanderous gossip. Again, we're talking about, these are subtle sins. We're not talking about outright gossip. We're talking about subtle gossip. You know, things that are indirect, that may lead to cast some negative light and so on, not outright gossip. These are things that are very difficult. You have a social life, you speak, you have discussions. It's very difficult to avoid something that may subtly be interpreted as something, something negative. And lack of concentration in prayer. When you're praying, your mind is distracted. Constantly concentrating, total concentration in prayer is very difficult. And to be able to overcome thought of sin, not only thinking to do a sin, but thoughts of this sin also means sinful thoughts, thinking things that we shouldn't be thinking of, lewd thoughts, things, things that are unwholesome and unproductive. You know, just like you can have a physical pornography, you can also have a pornography of the mind. You know, things that are just not appropriate thoughts, not unhealthy, unwholesome thoughts. And uh, since they pop into your mind unexpectedly, it's very difficult to be able to overcome. They continue. Thus, the Benoni is included in the generalization that no man avoids thoughts of sin. However, the impression retained in his mind from his meditation during prayer on God's greatness and the natural love and fear of God hidden in the right part of his heart enable him to prevail over and dominate the evil animal soul's craving, preventing the evil from gaining the supremacy and dominion over the city, the body, and carrying out slaving from the potential to the actual, but clothing itself in the organs of the body, in actual speech or deed. So this is the good news. The good news is that as a result of the prayer, when the Benini fills his heart and his mind, his mind, through his mind, his heart, with the light of Hashem, filling his mind, focusing and concentrating on the divine and evoking a love for Hashem, and when there's light, there's no room for darkness, so you put the ego to rest, to sleep. So yes, after you close the book and after you leave the shul, the ego comes roaring back to life. Nevertheless, the prayer ha does have an effect on you for the rest of the day. It leaves a taste, an impression. And it, it gives you strength for the rest of the day because that impression stays with you, that taste stays with you. And that gives you strength to be able to overcome and to do the right thing and to do it with vigor to do it enthusiastically. Because again, unless you do it with enthusiasm, unless you're excited about being Jewish, unless you're excited about doing the right thing, unless you're enthusiastic about doing the right thing, it's not going to last. It's very difficult. 
How can a person overcome the constant struggle, constant temptation, especially the three mitzvot that he just mentioned that are so difficult to, to fail to focus in prayer, to avoid the negative thoughts, to avoid subtle slander? Unless a person is constantly strengthened, has an inner strength, it's impossible. So when you pray, that's why prayer is essential. When you pray and pray properly, and during prayer you experience the Shema, you don't, don't only read the Shema, you experience the Shema, you love Hashem, you actually feel that love. You can touch that love with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your being. Then, even after prayer, when the, when the heart and mind, when that love leaves you consciously, but at least consciously you're left with an impression, a taste. And that gives you the strength to be able to overcome. Just like in general, a Jew needs Shabbat after six days of being immersed in the materialistic world, no matter how holy and pure you are, you need Shabbat, you need it. Because you're worn out. If you don't have a day, a full immersion, 26 hours, you can full immersion in godliness and holiness, and you don't have the strength. You can't go 14 days. You know, even the best soldier has to come home. Although you grow tired. You can't fight, fight, fight. We're not machines. You burn out. A person, you have to come home. You have to, re, re, you have to recharge your batteries. So you need a time which is total immersion, total immersion in holiness, where the world doesn't exist. You, you say Shabbat Island. You go to a dimension where there's no world, there's no business doesn't exist, and stock market doesn't exist, and it just doesn't exist. 24 hours immersion in holiness and godliness. Then that gives you the strength. You recharge. Now I can go out into the world and and conquer the world and fulfill my mission. So every day there's a miniature Shabbos. When you pray, it's like a miniature Shabbos in prayer, you have to totally immerse yourself into prayer. You have to remove all distractions. Part of the preparations of prayer is halachically. You have to remove all distractions in your mind. Don't think of anything else. And then totally immerse and concentrate and focus on the experience of prayer and connecting with Hashem. So this is your like miniature Shabbos. Now, although Shabbos is only one day of the week and we work six days a week, but it's enough. Because that Shabbos is enough strength, gives us enough strength, enough fuel to carry us for the whole week. And then we start preparing for the next Shabbos. So Shabbos, coast, we coast along on that energy for the whole week. The Shabbos leaves an impression the next three days, and, and then the Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, we start preparing for the coming Shabbos. So we're sandwiched between two Shabbos. That's what keeps us going. So to you, low prayer is only an hour a day in the morning, two hours, and the rest of the day we spend immersed in the materialistic world pursuing our jobs or whatever. But nevertheless, that quality, qualitatively, that prayer could leave an impression and leave an impact for the rest of the day. And that gives us the strength, the energy to, to, to do what we have to do the rest of the day. So that's the answer. So it's not depressing. Hashem gave us, gave us uh, the answer. The answer is prayer. Prayer is our lifeline. As Hashem told Noah, it was a flood. A flood that Noah was in danger of drowning in. Like the rest of the world. What was the answer? Hashem gave him the answer. Go into the Teva. The Baal Shem interpreted Teva means the word. Enter into the words of prayer. When a Jew enters into the mercies himself in the words of prayer, he's totally focused on the words of prayer. That's what rescues you. That's what saves you from the waters of the flood, that, from drowning, that saves you from drowning. 
So what gives a Jew a strength from drowning in the world of materialism when a Jew is cleaves and clings to the world with, for dear life, clings to the words of prayer and immerses himself in the words of prayer, then that gives you the strength that you can, you can ride the waves. You can, you can not only survive, you can thrive in that this environment. So this is the answer. Yes, for us, life is a flood. It's a tumult. It's conflict. It's tension. It's, it's difficult. It's, there's challenges from within and from without. And we could easily drown, like the rest of the world. But Hashem gave us prayer. When we pray, we make that godly connection. We immerse ourselves in prayer. We fill our mind and our heart with the light of Hashem, which we are in control of our mind. And we fill our mind, we focus and concentrate on godliness, which leads us to a love of Hashem. And when we fill our mind and our heart with the light of Hashem, the darkness just fades away. The ego goes to sleep for the, that hour or two. And then when we go back into the world, we have that impression that keeps us going for the rest of the day. But it's something we have to do each and every day. Each and every day we have to enter into the ark. That's why we have to start the day. You're not allowed to start. You, must, you can't do anything before you pray. That's the only, you have to start the day with prayer. When you start the day with the morning prayer, then you have the strength to go about the rest of your day and fulfill your obligation. That's our Shabbos. Prayer is our Shabbos, which we, we need for dear life. Not just praying for your needs, begging for your needs. It's much deeper than that. Prayer is a time to refresh, to connect. The root of the word tefillah comes from the word to connect. It's to focus, to center yourself, to connect, experience godliness. Get in touch with that divine spark, that hidden innate love. Experience it. Feel it consciously. And then, even when the, even when the light leaves, because your mind is occupied with your mundane life, but the impression, the taste remains. And therefore you're able to negotiate the rest of your day. So that's our lifeline. Continue. Furthermore, even in the mind alone, with respect to sinful thought, the evil has the dominion and power to cause him, God forbid, to think such thought consciously, to cause the mind to accept willingly, God forbid, the evil thought that rises of its own accord, unbidden, from the heart to the mind as explained above. Evil thoughts will occur to him involuntarily because the evil in his heart craves evil. However, the evil does not have the final say on what he will let his mind accept willingly. The Benoni's conscious mind is dominated by the divine soul. Instead, immediately upon the thoughts rising to the mind, he, the Benoni, thrusts it aside as it were with both hands and averts his mind from it. The instant he realizes that it is an evil thought, he will refuse to accept it even as a subject for mere conscious thought, and will certainly not entertain the notion of acting on it, God forbid, or even speaking of it. For he who willingly indulges in such thoughts is deemed a rasha at that moment. While the Benoni is never wicked even for a single moment, obviously then, the Benoni would not willingly entertain evil thoughts. So he's saying that this will also give him enough strength not only not to do anything wrong or to speak anything wrong, but even not to think anything wrong. Not that he shouldn't, um, shouldn't have any negative thoughts. It's not in his control. But the moment he does have a negative thought, he pushes it away with both hands. He refuses to continue 
um, indulging in that thought, thinking about that thought, pushes it away. And thereby, you actually fulfill a mitzvah. A mitzvah is when a person, the mitzvah, when a person is tempted to do something wrong, <coughs> and you overcome that desire, that's a mitzvah. Every time a person has a temptation to think a negative thought, and he pushes it away, and instead thinks a positive thought, changes content, switches channels, and changes the content of his thought. He can't stop thinking, but he changes the content of his thought. He actually fulfills a mitzvah, and he does a holy act. You know, a thief doesn't have the opportunity to steal, thinks he's honest. That's not, that's, that's a Russia. That's not a Benny. Benny is someone who he's tempted. He, the thought enters his mind, the lust enters his mind, and he pushes it away. Forcefully, he says, no, I'm not going, going there. I'm not going to indulge in that thought. It's pretty good. That's, that's a Benny. That's the definition of a Benny. Okay, we'll stop here. Next week, we'll learn about the... Till now, we discussed in man and God. Next week we'll discuss also areas between man and man. Um, because the Benini, as the Rambam says, the Benini is not just a question of doing the right thing. The Torah doesn't just tell the Jew to do the right thing, or say the right thing, or speak the right thing, or think the right thing. It's also a matter of attitudes. How a person deals with his anger, how a person deals with the jealousies. It's also part of being Jewish. You know, and um, the Benini also does the right thing in all of these areas as well. When it comes to being jealous or being angry. So that part we'll discuss next week.